Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, today, God willing, we end the seven epistles to the seven churches. We're on the last one. This is Laodicea uh, toward the end of chapter 3. Once we work through this, then as we hit chapter 4, we'll pause and, and we'll do a little bit of recap on what we've done so far, and then we'll take a little bit of time just to simply frame ourselves, reference ourselves in respect to the rest of this text, because the, tran the transition between chapter 3 and chapter 4 uh, is the major transition of the book. From chapter 4 on, you're really in the vision of Revelation proper, the heavenly vision. So we'll get into that, we'll spend some time, and we'll see the throne room for the first time, uh, again, from which everything flows and, and back to which everything uh, returns. So on to uh, chapter 3, verse 14, the church in Laodicea. Now by way of introduction to the city, one more time from Brighton. The modern site is called Eski Hisar, which means the old fortress. Situated in the Lycus Valley in the southwestern part of Phrygia, the city was on the juncture of two important trade routes. Along one of these routes, the one from Pergamum southward to the Mediterranean at Atalia, were five of the seven cities to which John addressed Revelation. Pergamum itself, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and 40 miles or so to the southeast, Laodicea. A neighboring city of Laodicea, some 10 miles distant, was Colossae. And of course, you recognize Colossae, that's where the Colossians were, Paul writes. Under the Roman Empire, Laodicea became the wealthiest city in Phrygia. Chief among its wealth were flocks of sheep, which produced a fine black wool and production of woven garments. The city was also known for its medical school. Two of its best-known medicines were ointments for the eyes and ears, and we'll see some of those themes get picked up in the text. The ancient god of the region was Menkaru, a god of healing. In the Hellenized city of Laodicea, people continued to worship the ancient god, but identified him with Zeus, the supreme Greek god. Laodicea was also a center of the imperial cult of emperor worship, although that did not reach its height until the latter part of the second century AD. Ramsey states that there was no city whose spirit and nature were more difficult to describe than Laodicea. There were no extremes to its civic and cultural character and hardly any noted features. But this even balance uh, or, but in this even balance lies its peculiar character. All right, there's your introduction to Laodicea. Let's see what the Lord has to say to this church. And by way of introduction, this is the harshest of the seven letters. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. <clears throat> Now that we've reached the seventh and final of these introductory epistles, uh, 
we actually have tie-ins now, not back to the Son of Man figure that we see in the later part of chapter 1, but we go back to the earlier part of chapter 1. There, Christ isn't called the Amen. Um, Of course, you remember from your catechism, Amen means yes, yes, it shall be so. Paul says that all the promises of God are yes in Christ, are amen in Christ. And so he is the amen, the surety, the truth and the assurity of truth, the assurity of all God's promises. And then this language of the faithful, the true, the witness, or the faithful and true witness, um, that, that harkens back to chapter 1, verse 5, where we're first introduced to Jesus Christ. So once more, you have an example of of John interweaving uh, themes with what's preceded and and weaving together this this tapestry where things are all flowing together and referencing one another. There in chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus Christ, the faithful, the witness, or the faithful witness, depending on how one takes that, and the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Okay, so here now he is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, this is really interesting. The beginning of God's creation can be taken in two different ways, and the word there is um, arche in Greek, which also means source, and, and almost, almost predominantly means source, which, of course, is, is fascinating because in John's prologue, in the prologue to John's gospel, in the beginning was the word... It's NRK. So it's, it's the source. So that in and of itself uh, lends itself to some really rather profound and, and <laughs> complicated meditations on, on what John is doing in these texts. But one of the things that I think we can be pretty sure of in this text is he's not going the direction that Paul goes in Colossians, where Jesus is the source of creation, where God speaks, and that word by which he creates all things, that word is the word made flesh, that word is Jesus. That does not seem to be John's point right here. Of course, he doesn't disagree with that point. The point is that Jesus, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, is the arche, the source of God's new creation. What's in view here is the church. And the the church really as the, there's various down payments and first fruits. Christ is the first fruit insofar as he's risen from the dead. The spirit is a down payment insofar as we have him already. And in one sense, the church itself is both first fruit and down payment in that we possess the spirit and are already raised, made alive with, with Christ spiritually, in that we were dead in our trespasses and now we've been made alive with him. And so these things all prefigure, these things are all the, the roots, as it were, of what is to become the new creation. So one of the most astounding things is what we, what we see with our fleshly eyes and, and no more is just the old creation. Everything falling apart, everything decaying, everything moving inevitably toward death. But what we can begin to see with our eyes enlightened by the gospel is in the very heart of death, in the very heart of this old, decaying, dying creation, there's a new creation already begun. 
What matters is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, Paul writes, but a new creation. You tie that in with the new birth of which Jesus speaks and Paul speaks. Uh, to be born of water and the Spirit. To be born anew. To be born from above. That's the dawning of the new creation. The church is the dawning of the new creation. And so even now in our midst, we can begin to see things. We can be, even begin to see things in the old creation. The old creation suddenly preaching to us uh, things that we didn't know until our eyes were enlightened by, by the gospel of Christ. And now even in the old creation, we can see... I mean, just, just think of like the importance of the sun and its daily rising and setting and its warmth and its light and see how all along now that sun, the earthly sun, the old creation, was pointing us to the new creation, the dying and rising of Christ, who is the true light, who is the true warmth, who in fact gives true life, you see. So already breaking in, we see that, I mean, now we don't see the sun as something to be worshipped in itself. We see the sun as the foremost preacher of Christ, at least if you're talking about just nature itself. That's precisely how Luther takes it. You can think of various psalms that speak in exactly this way, that, that uh, day to day pours forth speech. All of creation is preaching Christ to us. We just don't have eyes to see it. Enlightened by the gospel, we begin to see it, and that's, that's already glimpsing what will be the essence of the new creation, when all the old is burnt away, as Peter says, and what remains is just the gold, and then from that gold blossoms forth the new heavens and the new earth and the fullness of the things that we'll realize as we get to Revelation chapters 21 and 22, and then, of course, as we'll realize, not by faith but by sight, in that day when our Lord brings it all to pass. So this is, this is a fantastic introduction. Unfortunately, it goes downhill from here. <laughs> well, our Lord, our Lord is quite harsh with this church, and rightfully so, no doubt. I know your works, he says, verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. What's the church doing in Jesus' mouth? It's a really interesting connection. Where the word of Jesus is, there his church is. Where the word of Jesus is, there the spirit is. Where the spirit of Jesus is, there the church is. There's a number of ways, but I think that that's precisely what's, what's being said here. And that this church is about to be spit out means it's about to be excommunicated. It's about to no longer be church. Now, some commentators, it's a, it's a minority, try to take the interpretation that hot and cold, it's kind of the way that we use it, like, like hot would be good and cold would be bad, right? Like if, you're, if, you're, if you were hot on the Christian faith, you would be all about it. If you were cold on the Christian faith, you would not be about it at all. You would hate and despise it. And then we hear our Lord saying something like, well, if you loved me or hated me, I could work with that. But since you're lukewarm in the middle, uh, I can't work with that. Th that's weird. First of all, it doesn't come from the text. Second of all, it runs into this kind of logical contradiction of why on earth would the Lord want us to be cold? <laughs> why, why on earth would he want us to, to be cold toward his church and, and hate and despise it? So rather, what's in view here 
is that that water, if it's if it's cold, it's good because you can drink it. For example, if it's hot, it's good because you could wash with it or bathe in it. For example, you see. So hot is good, cold is good, but what kind of water is not very good? Just tepid, lukewarm water. You know, it's just too warm to be refreshing. Just too cool to be effective in washing or anything like that, and so so it's just this you know warm tempered ah blah so out of the mouth it goes, and that's that's really then the imagery is imagine imagine our Lord taking a sip of of water, and it's so like just kind of warm tempered stale that out it goes, and so is the Church of. Laodicea. So I will spit you out of my mouth, verse 16, verse 17, and then here's here's really why they're lukewarm. Okay, here's what that actually means concretely. For you say, that is the church is saying, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. There's the problem. See, when a cup is already full, then the Lord, whose business it is to fill our cups and make them run over, he can't give us anything. He can't do anything with that. Uh, When we're rich, when we already think we're rich and full and have everything we need, then what need do we have for Jesus? And what does he have to give us if we're already full? The Corinthians were much like this, by the way, and you can hear Paul bitterly lamenting, you know, would that you did reign. You know, you're rich. Like, just heavy, heavy sarcasm. St. Paul could be the patron saint of sarcasm. When, everybody gets, when, when anybody gets irritated with me for having a sarcastic remark in my sermon, I'm always happy to point out St. Paul's writings. And it suddenly makes mine look tame. Yeah, so here's the sin. I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. I'm content. And with all of that comes, you know, a, a disconnect from the Lord, who's the giver. The Lord continues, not realizing. So this richness, this, pro, this prosperousness, this, this needing of nothing, this is all delusion. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It's always easier to see the log in our neighbor's eye than, a, than the speck in our own. Or I guess maybe we have to reverse that. But it's always easy to see somebody else's sin. So it's, so it's easy for us as church to see the, how, how for unbelievers this manifests itself. You know, think, I, I tend to think of orange, your average Orange Countyan who wants nothing to do with God, that this is pretty much the diagnosis. I'm rich. I'm prosperous. I don't need anything from anyone. Probably going to live forever, you know. That's this sort of the assumption. And and what do you do with that? I mean, really, you can't do anything. I mean, you can try to point out the fact that that's not going to last, but that's precisely the nature of the delusion. I've arrived. I'm here forever. Uh, so really, what you what you have to do evangelically is is simply wait for the Lord to crush that idol, and be there to pick up the pieces. And if that idol doesn't get crushed, 
I mean, woe to that person. That's the rich man and Lazarus. That's, that's those who are fattened in, as, it, as in the day of slaughter. You know, James and the Psalms talk this way. So this is a terrible thing. Now, with that in our mind, can a church get like this? Can a congregation get like this? Can we as Christians get like this? Yes. And that's really what this letter is pointed to. It's not pointed towards unbelievers, but believers. So this is, there's, a, there's a dire warning here and sort of this idea of like, I've already got grace, I don't need any more. I've already got Jesus, I'm good. I already know his word well enough. I'm rich, I'm prosperous, I'm full, I don't need anything. Precisely in that attitude, in that confession, is delusion. And then underneath it, the Lord comes and says, in fact, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And of course, these are images for being deeply sinful, deeply deceived. All right, verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me. Now, this language is loaded in the scripture and uh, probably most famously in Isaiah to buy without cost. So that's, that's the language here that the Lord uses, to buy without cost. Okay. But look, they're rich, so that's the, that's the wordplay. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. Not treasures on earth, but treasures on heaven. Not gold on earth, but gold refined by fire. That is a pure Christian life refined by the fiery trials that we go through. That's that's Peter's language in his epistle, right? That we not not, um, be surprised at the fiery trial that we must endure, but that through those very fires, God is burning off the dross from us, purifying us, purifying our faith so that it's pleasing in his sight. So all of this deep, rich wordplay going on, you who are rich, fine, buy, exchange your riches, your earthly stuff that you think is everything, for gold refined by fire, for the true riches of, which would be a a refined soul, a refined faith, a fruitful life, etc., I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Because these are the riches that endure forever. I mean, this is what it means to store up treasures for yourself in heaven. It's not whatever money you have in your bank account or or whatever money you have invested in your various properties or 401k or whatever else. That's for this world and this world only. That's it. You're just a steward. And it's for a very brief time. But what happens in your soul, in your being, that lasts forever. That's, that's reward in heaven. That's treasure in heaven. That's gold refined by fire. That, you know, again, neither moth nor rust can destroy. So that's our Lord's admonition here. So that you may in fact be rich. All right, and buy from me then not only this gold refined by fire, but also white garments so that you may clothe yourself. Of course, he's accused them of being naked. Naked has the connotations of Adam and Eve's original sin, and of course, nakedness being shame, sexual immorality, which we've, see, we've, we've seen so frequently through these epistles due to their extremely pagan context. 
so in remedy to the nakedness that you may um, buy from me white garments. Now that's the baptismal garments we've already talked so much about and we'll talk about again throughout Revelation. And again, how, do you, how would you buy white garments from the Lord? Well, cheating and jumping ahead to Revelation 7 as we did last week. Who are these wearing the white, the white robes with palm branches in their hands? These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Again, your baptismal robes are, are robes that moth isn't going aren't, you know, no moth can eat that. Your sins can stain it. The blood of Jesus can cleanse it. That's a robe that belongs to you for all eternity. So what's our Lord doing then? Focusing their attention not on their worldly, earthly goods, but on the heavenly possessions bestowed upon them already, um, that he wants them to exchange their earthly goods for these things so that they have and possess them all the more and do so unto the ages of ages. So, white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes. There's the reference. Do you remember Brighton saying that in Laodicea, that that these folks were famous for their salve, their eye salve? So, salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Again, what's the problem? They don't see that they're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So to remedy this, the blindness, and thus to see all the other things, buy from me salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. This too becomes a, a baptismal reference in the early church. Um, you, you remember the man that God puts, uh, uh, Jesus spits into the ground, into the dirt, makes mud, and puts it on his eyes, and then tells him to go and wash. And in washing, then he can See, the early church takes this as, well, you tie this in with what Jesus says, that unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. To be born from water and the Spirit is to be given eyes to see. To be baptized is to, like that man, have the mud washed away from your eyes and be able to see. So this salve here is, you know, likely yet another reference to baptism. So by salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. All right, and then this is just a beautiful line in context or out of context. Verse 19, one of the best. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. So what's the purpose of our Lord's harsh words in this epistle? And by the way, remember what Brighton has told us, that all of these epistles, even though they're to separate churches, they're really all to the one church. And all the themes are woven together. And what's in one is, is as good for us as what's in another. And so all the rebukes in this way, in this final epistle, this has a way of summarizing all the rebukes that the Lord has given to his seven churches, to the sevenfold church on earth. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. That's the most comforting thing in the world. Because if you've ever felt like you've gotten a giant smackdown by God, just utterly humbled, 
brought down to nothing, made to feel worthless, comparatively worthless. Every so often we as Christians have this experience where we're going along great and think everything's great and it's like the scales fall from our eyes and suddenly we see ourselves at least a touch more accurately than we did a minute ago and it's horrifying. And the comfort we can take in this, the great comfort, is that this comes from the hand of the Lord, not as punishment, not as evil, not because he hates us, but precisely the opposite. I reprove and discipline those whom I love. So then this is, this is, uh, this is the challenge. This is the challenge. To begin to receive the Lord's reproof and the Lord's discipline with rejoicing, with joy, because they're signs of his love, but that's rather superficial. They're signs of his love, particularly because he loves you so much, he wants you to be better than what you are. And he's going to lead you and guide you in that way. And that that move and change that he makes in you is not just going to be for this life only, but for all eternity. So I say this is one of the most beautiful, one of the most comforting lines in all of Scripture, and, and especially in, the, in Revelation heretofore, because it ties in all the rebukes to these churches, and it ties in all the personal rebukes that we've all suffered, all the personal reproofs and disciplines that we've, that we've, that we've suffered at the hands of the Lord. And we see now that these are all, all the expression of his love. It's no different than what you would do for your beloved son or your beloved daughter. Either when they're going astray, you correct them because you love them. Or when they're not doing enough, when you want more, when they don't even see the way in which they could be more, you instruct them precisely because you love them. And so our Lord Jesus is to us. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous. Now here's the opposite of lukewarm. You see why he says either hot or cold. Be zealous. Be zealous. It's the opposite of apathy, which, as I've said before, I think is in many respects our spiritual disease here in in the fading West. Apathy. Uh, If I go to church once a month, that's enough. Bible study, I'm already full. I already know it. It's just, it's spiritual malaise. It's spiritual apathy. Uh, Well, I don't know. It might cost me some friends if I spoke out. You know, it's just, it's lukewarm. It's lukewarm. I mean, this hits us all right between the eyes, especially because the church in America, we've lived, we've re- lived relatively comfortably for quite some time. And those times are likely changing. So it does us well to really, really listen to our Lord's words and uh, remember that we have his encouragement to be zealous. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, this is, a, this is a verse that is often taken out of context and used in a kind of Pelagian or synergistic sort of way, right? Like Jesus is out there knocking on your heart and all you have to do is open the doors of your heart and invite him in. Like Jesus is some sort of like evangelical vampire. He can't come in to your life unless you invite him into your life. He can't come into your heart unless you invite him. You know, it's creepy and wrong. Uh, but... But so, so the point here is that that verse doesn't say anything about that. Who is he talking to? Believers. The church. 
Okay? He's knocking on the door of the church. He's knocking on the door of, of, of this congregation, of these individual believers' hearts, corporately on their door. He's standing at the door and knocking. If anyone hears my voice, so apparently he's calling too, and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him. So what does it mean to hear the Lord's voice and open the door? It means that you've heard his discipline and his rebuke. You know it's true. And, now, and, and so you hear him knocking and you say, yes, Lord, come in. Fix everything. Change everything. Give me gold refined by fire. Give me my white garments. Anoint my eyes so that I can see. Come in, Lord. And look what comes next. I will come into him, Jesus says, and eat with him. Now, the, the now and not yet aspect of this is the now aspect, of course, is um, the Lord's Supper. When our Lord Jesus, even to this very day, still eats with sinners. Every Sunday, without fail, he gathers around us to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness with his blood, not in abstraction, but right there in the chalice, the same blood shed on Calvary's cross right there in that chalice for us, for the life of the world. That's the now aspect, and the not yet aspect is the heavenly feast and banquet that the scriptures all point us to in the new heavens and the new earth. The richest meats and the finest wines. Which I always delight in because apparently the Lord isn't a vegetarian. Nor is he a teetotaler. The richest meats and the finest wines. So the Lord is standing at the door, knocking, crying out for us to repent, to be zealous once more, and his promises I'll come in and eat with him, and he with me. So that's, that's fellowship, that's companionship. What's in view here is the family table. You know, and that's instructive for how we see the, uh, the altar in our, in our sanctuary, in our congregation. It's the family table. It's not only the altar of sacrifice, where we receive the sacrifice made once and for all by Christ on the cross, but it's also now the family table, where we gather together. All right, verse 21, the one who conquers, theme throughout all of the uh, epistles here, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Yeah, this is incredible. Because this is, um, this is a whole Bible study or like 12 of them in and of itself. But the short, I'll just, I'll just, I, I won't be able to demonstrate it, but I'll just give you the shorthand. This is actually uh, deification, properly understood. This is us becoming small g gods, properly understood. What we're going to see is that the throne of Jesus is the throne of God. And we are invited to sit with Jesus on his throne, which is the throne of God. This is, this is what's hinted at in the scriptures that eye has not seen and ear has not heard. We do not yet know what we shall be. We can't even comprehend it. The goodness that the Lord has for us is so unimaginable and the state in which we will find ourselves is so unimaginable that if he were to reveal it to us, we probably wouldn't believe it. 
You can see some of this played out if you want kind of a longer discourse on this. Um, go to 1 Corinthians uh, 15 and pay really close attention to Paul's answer about, remember the Corinthians, they're talking about there's no resurrection of the dead? Because once that body goes in there, it disintegrates. It's not coming back. And Paul uses the analogy of the seed. You put the seed in the ground, and what body does it come back with? Does it look anything like the seed? You put the seed of a, of a mustard tree into the ground. When the mustard tree comes up, does it look anything like that seed? No, it looks thousand, thousand fold more impressive than that mustard seed. I think of the giant oak trees or the, or the redwoods. You put a little seed in the ground and look what happens. That's precisely what Paul says, and pay attention to his, his glory talk at the end. That's precisely what happens when we put a, a body into the grave, a Christian body into the grave. You have planted a seed, and on the day of our Lord's return, don't expect that seed to just flop back up. It's not coming back as a seed. It's coming back as the tree. So Paul's logic and language here is that we who once bore the image of the man of dust, Adam, that's, what, that's whose image we bear right now, we shall bear the image of that man who is spirit. Jesus raised in his body, spirit. So that what was sown mortal is raised immortal. What was, soul, what was sown corrupt is raised incorruptible. So to sit on the seat of, of the throne of the Son of God, and as we'll sh see that that throne is shared with God himself, this is what it means to be small g gods. This is deification properly understood. This is that in becoming one with Christ, Christ is God and man. He became as we are so that we might become as he is. And the scriptures are full of these illusions, but to be honest with you, I think we're scared of looking at them because we're scared of falling into idolatry. Certainly we don't mean anything idolatrous. God is God and will always be God forever and God alone. Don't get me wrong, but the glory to which we will be raised is unimaginable. And you glimpse that here in a verse like this. This too, by the way, is why I'm Increasingly convinced that King of Kings and Lord of Lords is reference to Jesus' relationship to us. We are sitting on his very throne with him. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. These present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed, Paul says. as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. You see, Jesus is bringing us in the pattern of his life, in the pattern of his victory so that what he is we are and shall become this is to be conformed into the image of Christ this is to grow up into the full maturity and stature of Christ that's what all these verses are this by the way too is like at the root of um, 
Christ had to uh, learn obedience through what he suffered. He actually had to go through it such that we have a pattern by which we go through and attain to the full stature of him. This is work out your, your salvation with fear and trembling. I mean, twofold, because our lives are patterned after Christ and our salvation is patterned after Christ. But the end that Christ achieves is the very end that we will achieve in Christ. That's the fear and trembling. And if you'll forgive me, there's precious little fear and trembling in Protestantism in American Christianity. So I will grant him to sit with me on my throne just as I sit with my father on his throne. Verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, what Jesus says, the Spirit says. And what Jesus says to one church, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, he says to all churches, to the sevenfold church on earth. Okay, so that wraps that wraps up this section. And I won't actually take us back to Brighton and run through uh, what, are the, what are the seven chief accusations the Lord makes, what are the seven deadly sins, as it were, here in Revelation, and what are the seven promises, what are the, what are the seven chief gifts that our Lord promises to give his church. I won't run through those. I'll just simply remind you of them. Uh, there's such beauty, such symmetry here as these first three chapters are woven together. And one thing I will simply point out to you is look at this. Look how beautiful this is, um, just by way of literature. So where do we end this final epistle? We end with the throne. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And what, what's the... Uh, what's the the summary statement, the title statement uh, over, over chapter 4, say in your Bible, the throne in heaven. So you see how he's beautifully led us to this crescendo of the throne, and now, lo and behold, we are going to go visit that throne. And chapters 4 and 5 are, um, well, you'll see. They're fantastic. You can't beat it. You can't beat it. You can, um, you can dwell in chapters 4 and 5 for all the days of your life. And that's because eventually we will. <laughs> all right. Um, so before we, uh, before we jump into chapter 4, let me, just, let me just check my notes here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we need to do. So we've got to take a field trip and get some data. So we really appreciate this for what it is. But we do want to point out then in terms of the overarching structure of Revelation, you know, there's any number of ways you can really conceive of the structure, but the prophetic message proper begins now here in chapter 4. You can see that when, um, okay, take a look, take a look with me back at uh, chapter 1, and it's right around, yes, 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 yes. So, so chapter 1, verse 9 I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation, and the kingdom or reign, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, 
and I heard behind me a loud voice, and you know the rest, okay, in the Spirit. Now flip forward to chapter 4 and take a look at this. Chapter 4, verse, verse 1 and 2. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here. See, we change venues. And I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. You see how that comes up once more? In the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven. All right, so this is the major transition. From here to four, this is the revelation proper. This is seeing things, you know, glimpsing into heaven, traveling up into heaven with John, and seeing these things unfold from the heavenly side of the coin. And then what we're going to see is that then from this throne of God, from this throne, um, probably the main the main action that's going to happen in this throne room is the coronation of Jesus. The coronation of Jesus. Remember, what happens after Jesus ascends into heaven? Pentecost, he pours out his spirit. Okay, but what's going on up there? This is the apocalypsis, the apocalypsis, Jesu Christu. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the telling of what went on up there. And so what we're going to see is the coronation of Jesus. Now you say, well, wait a minute. Wasn't the Son of God always enthroned with his Father in heaven, even before the incarnation, even before the cross and resurrection and ascension? To, to which the answer is yes. So what's changed? The one who is now coronated and seated on the throne of God, the one who is now worshipped by angels, as Hebrew points out, Hebrews points out, is the Word of God made flesh. It is now a human being enthroned on God's throne. That's what we mean by the coronation of Jesus. And this reality is eternal. Eternally a man, and not just a man, your flesh and my flesh sits on the throne of God. And as we just heard, we sit there with him. So this is, there are countless angels, and there are thrones and princedoms and powers, and there's this huge angelic structure and hierarchy of which we know basically nothing. And above it all and over it all, Jesus Christ is enthroned in our flesh. This is, this is probably the chief action that takes place in the throne room that is revealed to us. And this action is, is of such import and cosmic magnitude that the angels are astounded to see it and hear of it. In fact, there's, there's every indication that when we humans talk about it and preach about it as we do, the angels are listening in and marveling at God listening in and marveling at this reality. This, by the way, is like, you know, you don't want to grow up and become an angel. With all due respect, that's a demotion. I mean, there's no such thing as a demotion. Understand me correctly, okay? But why would you ever want to be an angel? A human being sits on the throne of God. Your flesh sits 
on the throne of God. That's our destiny. Our destiny is not to be men of dust, but men of the Spirit. Our destiny is not to be mortals, but immortals. Our destiny is to be sons of God and small g gods, enthroned with the one true God, our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the major action. From then this throne flows all the rest of the narrative of uh, Revelation, which you can summarize very simply in these three cycles of seven, the opening of the seven seals, the blowing of the seven trumpets, and the, three, and, and the seven censers being cast down, you know, from the altar of God in heaven, being cast down upon the earth, with an interlude between the second and third cycles of seven, which is the great cosmic war, and what, you know, why, why Revelation is so synonymous with uh, Armageddon and the final battle. I mean, it's true, it's just part of Revelation. I mean, maybe, even, maybe you would even say a fourth of the, of the content of Revelation. So we'll be taking a look at all of that. But it's important for us to just pause and see that this is where it all begins. It all flows from here. It all leads back to here. This is what's going on. We don't want to miss it. We're never going to make it. I think what we should do, even though we're a little early, um, I think we should pause here. I'll stop and see if you have any questions. Because what I'd like to do next week is begin with you. There are, there are three other texts in Scripture that are like Revelation 4 and 5. But they're like it the way a, a candle is compared to a spotlight. Um, there are four places in the scriptures, which is quite fitting, because as we're going to see, four is the number of the earth. There's four winds, there's four directions, etc. Okay? Four is the number of the earth. And there are these four visions that we get into heaven in God's revelation. What I want to do is show you the other visions. Again, we're not going to do careful exegetical work. We're just going to gather the data as quickly as we can. So that then when we come to this fourth and greatest vision of the throne room of God, we have a context we know what the likes of Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel have seen, and so then we will appreciate all the more what it is that John sees and thus reveals to us so that we too see it. Make sense? Okay, so next week, that's what we'll do. The four different visions of the throne of God, biblically, and, uh, and we'll show forth that and reveal Christ Jesus enthroned there for us. The Lord be with you.